to Costume Drama Rewind with your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Jett. This week, we're watching the 2015 drama In the Heart of the Sea. It's based on the nonfiction book of the same name by historian Nathaniel Philbrick. It's directed by Ron Howard, and it stars Chris Hemsworth, heartthrob Benjamin Walker, Tom Holland, Killian Murphy, Brendan Gleeson, and Ben Winshaw. A little wounded by the implication that Brendan Gleeson is not a heartthrob. But let's have a quick synopsis first. The movie opens in Nantucket in 1850 with Herman Melville, played by Ben Wishaw, arriving to meet with Tom Nickerson, played by Brendan Gleeson, and who is the supposed last survivor of the whale ship Essex. Melville offers a hefty cash payment in exchange for an interview about the disaster because he wants to write a book about it, which will, of course, turn out to be Moby Dick. Nickerson agrees, but reluctantly, mostly because his wife forces him to. It seems they need the money. We then rewind back to 1820, where the Essex is preparing to set sail on a whaling voyage. Despite having been promised the job of captain, Owen Chase, played by Chris Hemsworth, who has the most grating fake Massachusetts accent of all time here, loses out to Charles Pollard, played by Benjamin Walker, because his father is an investor in the company. Because he's hot. And the Pollards are local seafaring royalty. Tension naturally develops between the two, with Chase as the experienced, popular first mate to Pollard's less experienced but still unbearably arrogant captain. They suffer some initial damage sailing into a storm before finding, killing, and harvesting their first whale early on, which allows for some shots of gruesomeness and Tom Nickerson being lowered into the blowhole. Months later, they've had no other sightings, and they push way out into a purported whale gathering spot in the Pacific. They've been warned that those waters contain a vengeful whale that will hunt them. They dismiss it as a legend until disaster strikes, with a whale stoving, or smashing in half, the Essex, sinking it. The men are stranded in three boats. They try to reach Easter Island. They hit what they think is Ducey Island, refuel and set out again, only to lose track of each other. One of the boats is lost entirely. The two surviving boats, one led by Chase and the other led by Pollard, see their food supplies dwindle to nothing, leaving them with an extreme moral dilemma. Will they resort to cannibalizing some to save as many as they can? In Chase's boat, they solve the problem by eating the people who have naturally succumbed to the elements. In Pollard's boat, they draw straws. When Pollard draws the short straw, his young cousin, played by Frank Delane, a.k.a. young Lord Voldemort, grabs the gun and commits suicide, which makes everything worse because he drops the gun into the ocean when he dies. I'm also not an expert, but I really wondered here if the diseases they pick up might not be worse than the hunger. Eventually, the two boats are picked up by other ships. Pollard faces an inquiry when they get back to Nantucket, and his report is that the ship was stoven by a whale, but that's hushed up because of the industry's worries about the impact on their business. The movie ends with grown-up Nickerson resolving his guilt over having committed cannibalism, and Melville confessing that he's not a good writer, but that he hopes to write something great with this material. Laura, first impressions. Let me first say, the whale in this movie is a troll, and I love it. Because she is also a troll. <laughs> so after stoving in the ship, the whale keeps popping up throughout the movie when they're having like their worst moments ever, as if to taunt them. Anywho, maritime history has always been one of my big passions, so I loved this movie when it came out. Since seeing it in 2015, I did read the book, and I really fell in love with whaling history, even though I'm actually pro-saving the whales. Also, Moby Dick is one of my favorite books, so What Amazing Grace was to Megan, this movie pretty much is to me. Honestly, in order for this movie to be to you What Amazing Grace is to me, you have to cry at least six times. Big sops. Okay. I also want to note that Nathaniel Philbrick wrote a kid's version of this book, and it is literally called Revenge of the Whale. <laughs> so yes, we are all Team Whale here. 
But this movie was actually new to me. I am a big fan of Nathaniel Philbrick. I love his books on the Revolutionary War, but I'd never gotten around to this one. It was definitely more graphic than I'd expected, but also a lot better than I'd expected, considering that it completely bombed at the box office. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. While it's true that The Wreck of the Essex was a major inspiration for Moby Dick, Herman Melville never did actually have an interview with Nickerson. Instead, he read the narrative that Owen Chase wrote about the ordeal after he got back to Nantucket. Melville also met one of Chase's sons when they were both in the South Pacific on whaling voyages, and he got to chat about it with him. Nickerson actually later wrote an account as well, but it was lost to history until 1960 when it was found in an attic. On a side note, one of the other big inspirations for Moby Dick was a large and aggressive white whale named Mocha Dick. (laughs) Do you have a problem, Megan? (laughs) Men, carry on. That harassed whalers in the first part of the 1800s. On another side note, after writing Moby Dick, Melville met Pollard and remembered him fondly and even wrote a poem called Clarelle about him. So what was the big deal about whale whale? The Industrial Revolution was powered in part on whale blubber. Throughout the first half of the 19th century, it's used for outdoor street lighting, which had become ubiquitous in major cities, but also for powering everything from lighthouses to miners' helmets. It was used as an industrial lubricant for all kinds of mechanical contraptions, from guns to clocks to sewing machines to typewriters. Whale oil's heyday was bright but brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Please laugh. Uh. In addition to the difficulty in finding and extracting it, it also smelled pretty predictably terrible. As Melville and Nickerson allude to at the very end of the movie, in 1859, the American oil rush begins when petroleum is found in Titusville, Pennsylvania. This opens the door to a steady supply of kerosene, which burns brighter and cleaner, within a short time overtakes whale oil for lighting. It slowly declines in popularity over the next century, but it's still used up until the 1970s, or as late as the 1970s, for everything from margarine to soap to automatic transmission and hydraulic fluid. It's even used in World War I to help prevent trench foot. It remains in use up until the 1970s when a series of bans are put into effect by countries around the world. Thank heavens. Aside from the cannibalism, I do think the survivor's ability to last that long in the open elements is pretty impressive. When I watched the movie this time around, I was strongly reminded of another story of a miraculous survival at sea, that of Captain William Bly and the Mutiny on the Bounty. He was forced into a boat by the mutineers, put into the open sea, and he and most of the crew members that got stuck out there with him survived a voyage of about 4,000 miles before reaching safety. This was only possible because of his expert dead reckoning, aka using the sun and stars for navigation. We get brief glimpses of the navigation efforts on board the Essex. For example, after the ship gets stove in, Pollard finds that the chronometer was destroyed. A chronometer is a timepiece. It looked like a giant clock that was created so sailors could keep track of their longitude. And we also see Pollard trying to do his own dead reckoning with a quadrant on one of the boats. So I promise I'm not going to make this podcast longer than it has to be. So I won't go into detail about John Harrison's invention of the chronometer in the 1700s and how you can see all the models that he created in Greenwich at the Royal Naval Observatory, even though you should listen to me talk about this ad nauseum. I guess that's what I get to do later. Yes. When you said miraculous revel at sea, I really thought you were going to talk about Rose DeWitt Pucator. She's never seen Titanic, folks. We'll deal with it. So the Essex isn't the only example of sailors having to resort to cannibalism to survive. It's even referred to as the custom of the sea. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a book, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, in which a young sailor named Richard Parker, remember that name, gets eaten. 
However, the most famous case of cannibalism at sea takes place following the wreck of the Mignonette, in 1884, and the resulting British court case, Regina versus Dudley and Stevens. When the Mignonette sank off the Cape of Good Hope and the crew faced starvation, they ended up eating the comatose and dying cabin boy, also named Dun-Dun-Dun Richard Parker, <laughs> taking that off the list of baby names for safety's sake. After being rescued and delivered back to the UK, the survivors are arrested, and despite public sentiment being with them, the court originally sentenced them to death. They ended up getting just six months imprisonment, but the lasting legacy of this case is the development of the legal principle that killing someone else isn't justifiable even if suffering from extreme hunger, and it's still taught today in British and American law schools. It's also fairly ironic that the crew of the Essex ended up resorting to eating each other, given that at the time of the wreck, they were actually pretty close to the Marquesas, but opted not to try to make it there because they were afraid of the possibility of cannibals there, even though whalers had been stopping in those islands without problems for some time. As stated in the movie, Nantucket was the whaling capital for a long time before New Bedford eventually took the crown. Originally, there were a lot of right whales that lived near the island, so that was the start of Nantucket dominating the industry. But they began driving the right whale closer and closer to extinction. And side note, the right whale is still on the very endangered species list. Whalers had to go farther out in search of the whale, and we get glimpses of this industry crisis throughout the movie. By the 1840s, the industry was on a decline due to the lack of whales, and Nantucket was also hit hard because of a major fire in 1846 that destroyed many of the buildings on the island, and also the island's primary industry was whaling. Nantucket was also home to a lot of Quakers, hence the people hanging out in somber clothing on the docks during the movie. If you're familiar with Moby Dick, the prevalence of Quakers in the whaling industry is nothing new. Also, because it was originally the center of the whaling industry and whaling was an international effort, there were many different ethnicities and nationalities represented on the island. In the movie, we do see some Native Americans, as well as some black whalers. Nathaniel Philbrick points out that even though non-white whalers were able to work in the industry, they were generally subject to lower wages, referred to as lays in the movie, and worse conditions, as well as segregated institutions back home on Nantucket. The black sailors of the Essex were also among the first to die because they were generally worse off nutritionally. There was some dramatic license taken with the three principal characters. Captain Pollard was actually an experienced whaler and older than Chase, so even though it was his first posting as a captain, he wasn't there out of pure nepotism. Pollard commanded one more ship after the failed Essex voyage, and that one ran aground near Hawaii and sank. He took one more trip after that in a merchant ship, and then spent his life as a night watchman in Nantucket. There was a jokey slur that went around about him, that when asked if he knew Owen Coffin, his response was, Know him? I ate him. <laughs> in real life, he sincerely atoned for having eaten his cousin for the rest of his life, fasting every anniversary of the wreck. Meanwhile, Owen Chase went on to captain a number of successful whaling voyages. His first wife, Peggy, who greets him when he returns from the Essex voyage, later died in childbirth, and he married three more times. His second wife was Nancy Joy, the widow of Matthew Joy, who was the first Essex crew member to succumb. His third wife, awkwardly, gave birth 16 months after he went to sea, for which he decided that she was not a medical miracle and divorced her, and married a fourth time. By that time, he was plagued by physical and mental after-effects from the Essex ordeal. He begins hiding food in the attic of his house, and suffers breakdown, and is institutionalized for about eight years. Finally, Thomas Nickerson, who was just 14 when he sailed on the Essex, also returned to the sea, eventually working his way up to captain a whaling ship before retiring to run a boarding house, as depicted in the film. 
While the film sets up his story as an old man, the last remaining survivor of the Essex, at the time that Melville supposedly visited him in 1850, Nickerson would have only been about 45, and there were still quite a few of the Essex survivors living, including both Chase and Pollard. But I suppose if you have a chance to use Brendan Gleeson, you use Brendan Gleeson. So now the big question, how many Quaker hats? I'm giving this movie 4.5 Quaker hats and 4.5 Quaker oats. As I've said before, <laughs> I really love the movie even if I do actually close my eyes in the scene where they kill a whale. However, I'm going to knock off that half point because of the historic details they changed just to create dramatic tension and the story within a story narrative. I went into this assuming that no historical film that starred a Hemsworth brother could actually be very good. Mm. I just don't get their appeal, I'm sorry. At least Chris is attractive. Mm. I am prepared to eat those words, however. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Owen Coffin. (laughs) The pacing and atmosphere were really well done, and it brought home the high stakes and the danger, and even the cannibalism subplot is handled respectfully rather than being sort of tragedy porn. Uh, But because this is less my area of history than Laura's, I'm prepared to overlook the historical details that they don't quite get right. The one major flaw that I'll note is that it doesn't really set us up to care about any of the characters except Chase. Maybe Nickerson. Maybe a little bit Pollard. Oh, I cared about him the entire time. And down girl. And it resolves some of its (laughs) complicated moral and emotional issues a little bit too quickly. And on that basis, I am awarding it four Quaker hats. So finally, a few sundry other notes. I do have it on good authority from a friend who experienced this on her honeymoon in Nantucket that Nathaniel Philbrick rides his bike around the island and talks to people he finds who are using the historical walking tour brochure, which he helped produce. So if you find yourself in Nantucket, I hereby challenge you to try it, take a picture with the man himself, and send it to us. We mentioned in our synopsis that the men thought they were on Ducey Island. Actually, they were on Henderson Island, which now has the highest density of plastic rubbish anywhere in the world. I'm quoting Wikipedia, but I did read the Real News article. So a friendly reminder to reduce, reuse, and recycle, and if you go to the beach, please clean up after yourself. While the men of the Essex may have not killed as many whales as they wanted, they did manage to wipe out practically the entire ecosystem on one of the Galapagos Islands because one of the men set a fire as a prank and it got really out of control. LOL, maybe you could just short sheet somebody's bed next time. (laughs) So the book talks about how the crew of the Essex also trapped a whole herd of Galapagos tortoises and kept them in the hold to eat. This was possibly more upsetting to me than the whale hunting. I had a pet turtle growing up that I love very much. I'm allergic to everything else. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that people in Western countries like to eat turtle-adjacent animals in a way that they do not usually like to eat other household pets. I may have torn a page from my Colonial Williamsburg cookbook because it showed turtle soup served in a turtle shell and it upset me. That's horrible. I know. Every time I went to bake ginger cookies, it was just there. Anyway, the crew of the Essex thought tortoises were a delicious, nutritious treat and they trapped about 60 to bring along and butcher one at a time. However, they also thought the tortoises could live a year without food, which is not correct, and so their emergency tortoise horde mostly starved to death. That's terrible! It is, but also now I want to work the expression emergency tortoise horde into every conversation possible. Early on in the movie, Nickerson talks about Hawthorne being a great writer as a slight to Melville. Turns out Melville knew Hawthorne well, and there's some pretty strong evidence that they were in some sort of romantic relationship for a while after meeting at a picnic in 1850. While I like Hawthorne's book, Twice Told Tales, 
I feel like Neville could have aimed higher. I mean, this is the same guy who wrote the Scarlet Letter that bored you all the way through American literature class, and he made this huge deal over, oh, my family persecuted falsely accused witches in Salem. I have to grieve in a tone, even though nobody actually cared. Melville seriously deserved better. Thank you for that display of geek bravado. To continue, the entire okay. Melville framing part was inaccurate, and I find it unnecessary to include. In addition to not interviewing Nickerson, he definitely would not have been able to pony up the cash to pay him because he was always in debt and he had to rely on his father-in-law for money, and this included making his wife cash in on her inheritance early so he could afford his house in Pittsfield, which they do mention in the movie, and he insisted on buying this house because Hawthorne was nearby. His first kid, Malcolm, had already been born in 1849, unlike what the movie said. And finally, he probably wouldn't have actually been that phased by cannibalism. In his first few books, he talks about having met cannibals in the South Pacific. And since Nickerson mentions his earlier works, he probably would have had some awareness of the story. Also in Moby Dick, the South Pacific Islander harpooner Queequeg is a cannibal, and Melville waxes eloquently on all of his virtues. And in fact, he is probably Ishmael's love interest, so clearly Melville wouldn't have been that freaked out about Nickerson resorting to eating his crewmates. One final note, I learned while prepping for this episode that Nathaniel Philbrick's excellent book on the Battle of Bunker Hill has been optioned by Warner Brothers with Ben Affleck directing, and I really need this movie to happen, so someone please get on it. I assume Ben Affleck is listening, so Surely. just call me. I have notes. Anyway, make sure to read In the Heart of the Sea. Also, check out our website, because we're going to have plenty of resources for this episode. Please consider following us on our social media platforms and leave us feedback so we know how we're doing. Next time oh, no, on no, Costume Drama no, Rewind. No, Someday becomes somehow, and a prayer becomes a vow, and the strike starts right damn now. That's right! Next week, we are marking Labor Day in the U.S. with a review of that classic of my youth, The Newsies. Join us as we take a trip through turn-of-the-century New York City with Christian Bale and friends. Thanks for listening to Costume Drama Rewind. I promise I won't let her sing next week. You have my word! (laughs) 